Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter 17, Acts 17. Now, what we've looked at recently is in Acts Acts chapter 16, remember uh, Paul and Silas, uh, they were there in Philippi with Luke and Timothy, but Paul and Silas specifically were beaten with rods, (laughs) hauled before the city magistrates. The lictors took and beat them and threw them in the clink. They (laughs) ended up in the the deepest part of the jail, the the dungeon, as it was. And uh, then as things unfolded, the earthquake and the Philippian jailer being saved by going from absolute despair to... (laughs) absolute joy, going from being a harsh, punishing uh, guy that tortured his prisoners to then wanting to wash their wounds and serve them dinner, (laughs) which was remarkable. Uh, And then the magistrates realizing that they had really made a mistake. They had prosecuted these Roman citizens without due process and uh, which in itself was a capital crime. They could have, if word got back to Thessalonica, which is where we're going to be today, which was the capital of Macedonia. And, and if uh, the, the governor there had gotten wind of it, they, these guys would have been in no small amount of hot water. So they came and they just sent their, they sent the, actually the torturers, they sent the, the rod bearers back to the jail and said, hey, tell the guys to go. And, and Paul said, no. We are not going to leave. If you want us to go, you come and tell us yourselves, essentially. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he does. And, and the reason he did that was not because he was all twisted up about it. I mean, he was definitely, he and Silas were brutally beaten. They would have had open sores and massive bruises all over their backsides, perhaps the front, we don't know. But it was because he saw a, an opportunity actually to further the gospel. What he saw in that was that they had publicly made a a spectacle of of them at the town square when they had them beaten and the whole city had seen what had taken place. And Paul said, no, we're not leaving privately. We're not leaving quietly because you made a lot of noise when you threw us in here. And so by having them come back, what he did was he ensured that the Philippian church, number one, that the name of Christ would be honored because it was potentially damaged in that. And number two, that this Philippian church, this fledgling infant church would be able to go forward without having to have that kind of thing hanging over their heads. And so it was really a beautiful thing that he did totally spirit-inspired, totally spirit-driven. You can read that in the text and just kind of breeze right by. So that's what's been going on. Uh, He pushed back, forced their hand, caused them to publicly acknowledge their error, uh, limiting the government oppression uh, to that church going forward. So we wrapped up last time with Acts 16.40. At the tail end of all of that, it says, so they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So they left Philippi. Interesting, Paul's relationship with this church, the Philippian church, uh, even though he was leaving physically, he would be, they would not be strangers. 
uh, the Philippians would send support more than once to Paul. Uh, he would mention them in his letters going forward. And 10 years later, 10 years from this point, he would write a letter back to that church. And, and it would, it, as he's chained to a Roman guard, as, as Mason brought out last week in his study, that here's Paul in a Roman in house arrest in, in Rome, chained to a Praetorian guard, writing this wonderful, joy-filled letter back to the church at Philippi. It is the most joy-filled letter in all of the New Testament. And, and, and it's just a, a remarkable thing. They had a relationship, my point is, going forward, that lasted many years, all the way to the end of Paul's life. So uh, as we look at that, set the context for where we're going today, let's look at chapter 17, verse 1. So now when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, uh, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So now I have a couple of maps here. This map number one, the first one, shows all of Paul's second missionary journey. You see where it starts there in Antioch of Syria, the yellow area right over on the, the far right, and goes up. Uh, goes to Tarsus, through Tarsus and all the way through into Galatia. Remember, they go through Lystra. That's where they pick up Timothy and go on through. And, and what was interesting is Paul never intended to go to Europe. He wanted to go first to Asia and the Holy Spirit said, no, <laughs> I don't want you to preach the gospel there. So then he decided, well, I'll go north into Bithynia and, you know, Paul and Timothy and Silas at this point, Luke wasn't with them yet, and the Holy Spirit blocked their way again. He, he said no. <laughs> so they said, well, okay, let's go on to Troas. They go to Troas, and that's where they pick up this doctor named Luke. And then Paul gets that interesting vision, the Macedonian call, where he has a dream or a vision, and there's a man from Macedonia saying, come and help us, please come. So he gets together with the guys and they all agree. And there's four of them now, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. And they all agree that God is calling them to cross the sea and go to Europe, go to uh, end up in Philippi. So that's where you see on the big map, that's what's going on. Now, in the second map, it's just a close up of what we're seeing there. We see that... Uh, they travel over land from Philippi to Thessalonica. Now, the road that they took was called the Via Ignatia. Uh, it was also called the Ignatian Way. That would be uh, more of a, a proper way to say it. And what it meant was Way of the Nations. Now, this is a major east-west road in the Roman Empire. It connected the eastern part with the western part of the empire, and it actually, the main part of the road went right through downtown Thessalonica. Uh, we see here that the Philippi to Thessalonica, I mentioned before, it's about 80 miles as the crow flies. However, it's about 100 miles by land because they've got <laughs> curves and, and twists and turns in the road. So from Philippi to Amphipolis, it was about 33 miles. Uh, Amphipolis to Apollonia, about another 30 miles. And from there to Thessalonica, about 37 miles. So a total of about 100 miles that we cover in verse 1. The reason I go into that is it's really easy, again, for us to read this and not connect it to a geographical place. Uh, 
All right, we don't know what happened in Amphipolis and Apollonia. We can assume that there was no synagogue there, but we also know that Paul was headed towards a major population center. Thessalonica had a population of about 200,000 people, it's estimated, at that time. And it was a, truly, it was a cosmopolitan city. It was a crossroads. It was a very popular place, um, similar to Corinth. And we'll look at Corinth as we get to that. Or also Ephesus later on, big cities, huge cities. And, and Thessalonica was kind of a melting pot. Uh, it was inhabited by peoples from all over the known world, all over the empire. The Germanic peoples had come from the north, relocated there. They brought with them their pagan religion, pagan culture. Greeks lived there who had come from the south, Achaia, which is the province to the south where Athens is located. We'll look at that next week. Uh, and they would come from there, also from the islands in the Aegean Sea. So the Greeks would come and they brought with them Grecian culture, philosophy, and, and idol worship, we'll talk about that when we talk about Athens. There were literally more idols in Athens than there were people. All right, so there's a great influence coming from Greece. The Romans from the West had come and settled there. Uh, largely, the Romans were retired military per- personnel that, that came and settled in Thessalonica. And they had brought their wealth and uh, considerable political muscle as well. Uh, finally, the Jews had migrated from the east and uh, in large numbers, eventually a third of the population of Thessalonica would be Jewish. So where Paul and Silas and Timothy now, they leave Luke in Philippi. Uh, and so where they come now is they come to Thessalonica and they're looking at this place and thinking, <laughs> essentially, I would be thinking, where do I start? Well, Paul has uh, a pattern that he's going to carry out. It starts all the way back when Stephen, remember, he was when, before he got saved, before he converted to Christianity himself, standing there holding the cloaks of the, the men who were stoning Stephen. And Stephen had set this wonderful pattern of evangelization that Paul, I'm sure, hung on to. So uh, leaving Philippi, these three men traveled to the largest city in the region. Uh, and that would be Paul's pattern for the duration of his second missionary journey into the third missionary journey. He would go to large population centers because they would have a greater impact uh, by reaching the larger population. And from there, they could send people out to the smaller outlying cities and spreading the gospel. So passing through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they, there was no synagogue there. He came to the largest city, Thessalonica, which did have a synagogue. So now his pattern also was to go to the Jews first. Also the God-fearers. We've talked about God-fearers. They were people that were friendly towards Judaism. They had a great interest in the Old Testament. They had not fully committed and converted to Judaism but they were called God-fearers and they were usually people that were Gentiles that were attracted to Judaism. So we'll see that as well as we get into the text. So now his pattern was to go to the Jews and the God-fearers first. Why would he do that? Well, I think that part of that was he had a starting point. These people had knowledge of the Old Testament that gave him a great advantage. He was an Old Testament scholar. That was all they had at that time. That was the Bible. 
And Paul, I mean, he had the equivalent. He is he highly educated in the school of Gamaliel back in Jerusalem. And he had the equivalent of a double PhD. I mean, he knew the word of God. And so he had a great advantage in going to people, connecting with them, because that was the common ground that he would share as he now would begin to illuminate the gospel of Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. So uh, that... The other thing I think about, too, is Paul had been a rabbi. He was a well-known rabbi, a Pharisee of Pharisees, we're told in Philippians chapter 3, and that what he did, he knew the ropes. When he went to the synagogue, he knew that the ruler of the synagogue would have a portion of the service after they did a public reading of the scripture, where there would be a portion of the service where he would turn it over to visiting rabbis. So Paul would go in, he would, they, and he, he must have presented well, because these guys would come in, perhaps he'd talk to them ahead of time or whatever it was, and they would turn the, the service over to him. And that's when he was like, time to rock and roll. I mean, I don't think he said that, but it was time now for him to be begin to illuminate from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So he also knew that the Jews had been given the gospel first. In Romans 1.16, Paul himself writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. He says, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So he followed the same order. Jesus had offered himself first to the Jews and then to the world. So too with the apostle Paul, he would follow that example whenever he could. I mean, there were times where it wasn't possible for him to do that. So I don't want to yeah, it represents that that was cast in concrete that he just didn't share if that wasn't the case. No, he, he was all things to all men. But that was the pattern that he's following. Verse 2, Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned from the Scriptures. Notice it says his custom. That was his pattern. That was his way of going about it. Verse 3, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Now, we're not certain how long Paul and the other guys were there in Thessalonica, but we can see here his time at the synagogue was limited to about three weeks before things started to go south. And we'll get to that. But we also notice here in verse 2, Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, the word reasoned is an interesting Greek word. And what it means is the same word as dialogue. So what we're told here is that this was an exchange. It was questions and answers. He had discussions with them from the scriptures. It wasn't just him preaching at them. He was talking with them. And they were. he was showing them. He was demonstrating things to them. It's not about, folks, and something I'm careful of as a pastor, I'm not here to tell you what to do. This isn't, you know, let's just boss people around. We're not going to get into a whole legalistic shtick here. That's not, that's not it. And it's not about telling people what to do. It's about telling them why. We want to be able to reason from the scriptures. We want to be able to show from the word of God why these things are so and how they apply to our lives. And that's where we grow. And we're allowed, and Paul would allow the hearers, and what we do here, we allow people to come to their own conclusions based on the information that's being put forth. And that's healthy. That's good. 
that ensures that people are doing business with the Lord. I am, you know, and if you're ever in a church where that church sets itself up as, well, here's God and here's you and here's the church. I grew up in a church like that. (laughs) One word, run. That is not a healthy approach. And there are many out there that will do that. There There are many out there that will subtly do that. Oh, no, no, we're all about grace. We're all about freedom. We're all about this. We're all about that. But you better tell the line is what subtly gets put forth. Dangerous, dangerous. So the point in this is that discussing the gospel is reasonable. It says he reasoned with them from the scriptures. It's logical. It makes sense. In verse three, it says he says he was explaining things to them. The Greek word for explaining there, it literally means to open. And so he opened the scriptures to them with clarity, with simplicity. He allowed them to see what was going on, what was being said, and then he would relate it to Christ. He did the work of demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Demonstrating, it, it literally again, it means to place beside. So what he was doing is he would say, look at this Old Testament scripture, look at the scripture in the Psalms, look at the scripture in the prophets, look at the scripture here. He, he would lay that down and then he'd say, now I want you to understand this is what Christ did. This is who he was This is what he did. And so he would do this whole thing, bouncing back and forth between illuminating the person and the work of Christ and what the Old Testament prophesied and what it stated, what it put forth. Always what he did was he emphasized the person and the work of Christ. Who Jesus is, he says, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. What he had done for them, he suffered and he rose again from the dead the person and the work. And folks, in your own studies, and when you come here, focus on that. Because when we depart from the person and the work, we're departing from the gospel. If you change who Jesus is, you change the the message of the gospel. You change the message. If you change the work that he accomplished, then you change the message. So those are central. The person of Christ, the work of Christ has to be central to any presentation of the gospel. If you deviate from that, you've got another gospel. And Paul has some very strong things to say about that in the book of Galatians. So as he's doing this, I picture the people there in the synagogue and and he's laying this out and the lights are going on. I would love to have been there in the synagogue listening to him quote one Old Testament passage after another. As he went, you know, he's here, let me tell you about Psalm 22. Let me tell you about Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. Now, that was before they had chapter numbers, but those are areas that we see major prophecies about the person and the work of Christ. Let me talk to you about Genesis chapter 3, where the, the, that first prophecy after the fall of man comes about. Let me talk to you. Let me share with you from Zechariah chapter 9 about the birth of Christ. Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14 about the second coming. All of these things are contained. In the old, the new is contained. And in the new, the old is explained. That's a a ditty I learned in college and and it's helped me a lot over the years to understand, to break down the scripture. So on uh, it would go with with Paul uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He would weave together this beautiful picture of Jesus the Christ from the scripture. 
Now, those familiar with the scripture would know passages like Isaiah 53, which spoke of the suffering Messiah. Now, I want to talk to you about, this is a very interesting aspect of what they had to grapple with because the Jews had some specific ideas about Messiah that Paul was connecting, again, connecting the dots. So in Isaiah 53, we see the suffering servant. Uh, But also they would know that in Psalm 2, that speaks of the ruling Messiah, a Messiah that would rule the nations. So in the Jewish mind, the only way that they could reconcile a, a Messiah that reigned with authority and a Messiah who suffered brutally was to have two Messiahs. And they literally looked at it as though there were two Messiahs. So the Jews called the reigning Messiah, Messiah ben David. Ben means son of. Uh, so Messiah, son of David, who was, as we know, Israel's mightiest king. Now they called the suffering Messiah, Messiah ben Joseph, who, uh, remember Joseph was the Old Testament hero that had suffered uh, unjustly at the hands of his brothers. So in the synagogue, Paul opened the scriptures, explained how both sets of prophecies were fulfilled in one person. He had to be able to break through their understanding and show these are not two messiahs. This is one messiah who came. And yes, he came as a suffering servant and he will come again as the ruling king. Jesus, the son of Joseph, was a suffering messiah who was crucified on the cross. But after three days, he, son of David, rose from the dead to rule and reign forever. Uh, And I imagine the crowds, I mean, as they're taking this in, this is, you know, we know the gospel coming in. This is totally new information for these people. These people that, again, they have a keen interest. They know their Bible. They know the Old Testament. He's at the synagogue, but they didn't know this. And so what he's doing is he's laying these things out and he's showing them, illuminating from their scripture that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the one that came to suffer as well as will be the reigning king and rule over the nations. And I I, I think about the crowds just being glued, standing there at rapt attention, just just fascinated, hanging on on every word as, as he laid out the gospel, passage by passage, point by point. Uh, Just what a scene this would have been. And this happened over and over again as Paul went about the empire and preached in the synagogues in in the larger cities. Verse 4, And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. So as the Holy Spirit was being poured out in these gatherings, some of the Jews present became convinced Aha, that makes sense. And the Holy Spirit, again, being bearing witness to the things that were being said. Now, there, it says there was also a great number of devout Greeks. Now, the New American Standard Bible renders, instead of devout, it says God-fearing Greeks. And again, these are the God-fearers. These are the ones that are friendly. They cozied up to Judaism, but not converted to it. And they were Greeks. They were Gentiles, not Jews. But they were ones that were there. And there was a large contingent, evidently, a great number of them uh, came and became followers of Christ. Also, it talks about the the women here. And evidently, there was a large contingent of prominent women uh, attending who came to believe. Now, women in Macedonian culture, just uh, an aside, 
such as we looked at Lydia in Philippi, the businesswoman who had stature and, and we assume wealth, a seller of purple and all of that. They had greater influence. They had greater independence than many in the Roman Empire. And so evidently there were women who were prominent in their society that were part of this congregation and they were coming to believe as well. The other thing about women with as far as the attraction to Judaism goes is that there would be a greater security, a greater attraction for them uh, to women regarding the monotheistic, moralistic teachings of the Jews as opposed to the perverse anything-goes gods of the Greek and Roman pantheons. Remember, we've looked at the practices of the the Greek and Roman gods as being very perverse, uh, very loose, very immoral. And so women looking for security, looking for something to hang on to, they were very attracted to Judaism. And by extension, as things went with the gospel, Christianity and with the moral bearing that that brings. Verse 5, but the Jews who were not persuaded, now we see that Paul talks about, or Luke talks about those who were persuaded, and now he's going to talk about those who were not persuaded. They became envious and took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, they set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. So, Here we're seeing a repeat of what happened to Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13 on his first missionary journey when they were in Antioch, Pisidia. Remember, uh, the Jews stirred up a crowd there. They became, it says they became envious and they stirred up a crowd. They had them kicked out of the city. So they went on to Lystra and Iconium and Derbe and the Lord did some great work there, not without trouble. They had trouble there as well. So What it says here, and I think this is interesting, the Jews became envious. It didn't say that they got mad because Paul was spreading false doctrine. No, they were jealous. They were jealous of the number of converts, not the content of their preaching. (laughs) That's what bothered them. Uh, Therefore, they recruited some thugs (laughs) from the the city square. They thought, aha, I know, let's go down and get (laughs) so-and-so. I see him just hanging around. And these were guys that would just simply hang around. They, they generally known as troublemakers. Uh, the, the English Standard Version renders this as wicked men from the rabble. <laughs> so these were rabble rousers. These were troublemakers. And so the Jews, being envious, being jealous, went and rounded up some guys to do their dirty work. They wanted to get, they wanted to get some things done. And they, of course, weren't going to take that on themselves. They were far too pious to do that. So, uh, and now it talks about they attacked the house of Jason. Now, evidently, Jason was a local man that had responded to the gospel and turned it, offered his house to Paul and Silas and Timothy as they planted the church there in Thessalonica. I mean, because it says that they took Jason and some other brothers out of there when they drug them out. We'll see that in verse six. But the point is, is that here's Jason. He's just going about his business. And these guys just come and attack his house. And, you know, we can assume also that Jason was probably hosting at least one of, if not the house church in Thessalonica at this time. Remember, the church is just getting a hold. It's just getting a foothold in this city. 
And so uh, evidently Jason had a prominent place, the part that he was, that he was fulfilling in that whole thing. Verse 6, so when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying there is another king, Jesus. <laughs> now, these guys are there, I'll tell you, they are telling some doozies here. Several things wrong with these statements. First, the accusation against Jason and the others was that they turned the world upside down. Actually, the opposite is true. The world was already upside down, and they're turning it right side up. Folks, we live in an upside down world now. And when somebody turns to Christ, when somebody comes to an understanding of the person and the work of Christ in their own lives, uh, guess what? Things get set right. Things get turned right side up. So uh, again, from their perspective, they're trying to bring these guys before the leaders of the city on trumped up charges. (laughs) And that's part of what they say. Second thing was here, we see Jason who had, I mean, he was committing acts of kindness, hospitality, uh, and that was being spun to blame him uh, for having an evil intent in harboring those lawbreakers. Oh, he's harboring these fugitives. He's a terrible guy. Hogwash. It's just not true. The third thing is they pervert the intentions of the men from that of sharing the love of Christ to accusing them of sedition against the Roman government. They say, no, no, no. These guys, they're talking about another king. No, this is not Caesar. This is another king, Jesus. Very reminiscent of what the Jews did when they pulled Jesus up in front of the in front of Pilate back when he was executed they said no 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 he's he, he's and remember the Jews said we have no king but Caesar and that whole thing I, I could go into that but the point is is they were just manufacturing a narrative that fit their being envious jealous of the fact that these men were pulling the crowds away from them and that's what it amounted to. It was so pitifully shallow what they're doing. The reality is the gospel actually makes people better citizens, not worse. Once you understand the nature of the gospel and the nature of what it is to follow Christ and to obey the government, <laughs> as long as the government's not... Oh, I'm, oh, I could rabbit trail on that. <laughs> I'm not gonna... <laughs> Zip my mouth. <laughs> Verse 8. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So the leader's concern here was that they did not want Rome to think that they were somehow opposed to Caesar. And the Jews knew it. That's why they did manufactured that charge. Now we're going to put the, the leaders on edge. And, and sort of insinuate that maybe if they're friendly to these guys, they're friendly to this other king, and they're not friendly towards Caesar. Now, Rome had a way of solving problems that was very direct. And they didn't want to see that happen. They came in with swords and horses and things of that nature. So it says here that they took a security from Jason. Now, it's the same as Jason having to post bail or to post a bond. And what he was doing is they took a bond against future troubles. They said, okay, Jason, 
pony up. So the other thing about this is it talks about Paul and Silas here. There's no mention of Timothy. Now, you have to understand that when they had picked Timothy up in Lystra and he had gone with them, that Timothy is, he is a pupil. He is a disciple. He is a learner at this point. And he's probably hanging back as Paul and Silas. Remember Silas, he was an elder at the church in Jerusalem. I mean, he was a very learned man. He was a a well-known man that had stature and, and prominence in the church in Jerusalem. And he had come up, remember he'd come up with the letter when they had troubles in Antioch in Syria, uh, come up with the gang and he decided to stick around and ended up going on this journey. So Paul and Silas were both well-educated, very well-informed men as far as the nature of the gospel. Timothy was coming up. So we don't see Timothy in here. We know he's present, but we don't see him actively involved. He's not the one that they're trying to track down here. So uh, <laughs> that's as far as we're, I'm going to go with the text this morning because I've got some things I want to cover here. Next week, we'll get into the church at Berea. Now, that's, this is, we've looked at the church at Thessalonica today and the things that had gone on there. Uh, but I want to I wanna give you some, share some thoughts here and, and uh, just wrap up. I've got actually three things I want to talk about. The first is simply the principle that often doing the will of God results in greater difficulty in our lives and not less. Now, <laughs> you got to understand. Uh, you know, and I have really concluded over the, I've been a Christian for 40 years now, and I really have come to the conclusion that Christianity is not for the faint of heart. It's tough walking with the Lord. These days, in this culture, in this environment, it's doubly tough. Because if, and we're, we're a little church here in Newburgh, Oregon. I mean, we're not out there in the headlines or any of that stuff. But you know what? To just simply stay the course and preach the word of God, teach people what God's word has to say, lay it out there. It's tough. And I'm not, this is not a poor me thing at all. It's just for us to stand up for what God's word puts forth. We are standing directly against a culture that is increasingly hostile towards us. And you got to know that, folks. So very often, doing God's will will result, result in greater difficulty in our lives. Now, Paul, reflecting back on the difficulties of his ministry years later, would encourage Timothy in the last letter that he wrote here. Now, he's in the Mamertine prison in Rome, dark, dank place. I've mentioned before, I've been there and it would not have have been an enjoyable experience. But he's on death row and he knows it. And he's writing back to encourage Timothy, this young pastor who had been his protege, And so uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 10 through 12, we read, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, and perseverance. So what he's talking about is, Timothy, you you have been learning. You have been a pupil of mine. You've followed all of that. But then in verse 11, he says, persecutions afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured. So what he's saying is, look, 
it wasn't easy. You know, (laughs) there's a couple of other places, I won't go there in the book of Acts, where Paul talks about the things that he endured for the sake of the gospel. And it's a long list. Perils in the sea, perils with the (laughs) perils with, I mean, he just goes on and on. But I'm encouraged. He says, and out of them all, the Lord delivered me. So while it is tougher, especially in a hostile environment, to walk with the Lord, you got to know and you got to trust that Jesus has it. He is in control. He says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will, not might, not could, not maybe, he says, will suffer persecution. If you stand up for Christ, not everybody's going to pat you on the head and tell you what a wonderful person you are. Guaranteed. There will be those who are attracted, just like we see here. Some of the people were persuaded. Many of them were not. The ones that were not became hostile towards the cause of Christ. They weren't hostile towards Paul. They were hostile towards the message. And you got to understand that. The Apostle Peter had similar sentiments. Uh, in First Peter 4, uh, we read, Peter writes, he says, Beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing is happening to you. <laughs> he says, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Interesting. You don't think that in terms of the world. I mean, in terms of the world, the people that really are the popular ones, they're the ones that have it easy. They're the ones that have it all kind of, it looks externally anyway, like it's all nailed together. It's all good. But that's not the case. In reality, often our lives get more difficult as we walk with the Lord. Because I'll tell you what, it's like I've shared with you guys before, it's like the, where it, just a, a living illustration for me was when my wife and I, a few years ago, a number of years ago, we were at Costco and we're pushing our cart. And well, actually, we're, you know, the, you push your cart down this side of the store and you push your cart up this side of the store and all that. Well, we're pushing our cart and I realized that every single cart, and there was a lot of people at Costco, this is in Redding, California, <laughs> that that day, that everybody was pushing their carts the other way. And I'm like bumping people and I'm having to take side you know, and just try, and it's like, good grief. This, and I, I looked at Stacy and I said, this is kind of like walking with the Lord. <laughs> and it's true. There are times where you are definitely swimming against the tide, folks. Take courage. That doesn't mean that God's mad at you. That doesn't mean that God is against you somehow. That very likely means you're doing something right because the God of this world is going to see to it that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution to one degree or another. The second thing I want to talk about here is that when things are tough, fall back on the word of God. Be encouraged. Now, I'm going to talk about Jason for a minute. Here, this guy, he's going along, no doubt excited at the new life and the spirit that he was experiencing from uh, having converted to Christ. And and, he's serving the Lord now. I mean, God had put on his heart to open his home and do all this. And so he's, he's just going along. And all of a sudden, his home is attacked. He's drugged before the authorities. 
He's arrested. He's falsely accused. And then he has to pony up some cash just in order to go home. I mean, that was what happened to him. As I mentioned, our world is increasingly hostile towards the church. False narratives, false accusations abound. You may not experience them pers- be experiencing them personally, but it doesn't take much to look at the news to see what's going on, to see what's happening on the political landscape. Very often what's happening on the, on the spiritual landscape because the church is under a huge amount of attack. Uh, people taking the church into areas that they have no business taking it in. Very poor leadership in, in many cases. But you've got to stay focused on God's promises in the midst of all that. Isaiah 54, uh, verse 17. I quoted this to uh, a friend recently who was going through some tr- struggles and uh, trials. This is no weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me. Your righteousness is not coming from how popular you are. It's not coming from how well you did at work. It's coming from the Lord. And that is a permanent righteousness that is embedded in your soul, that you have been dipped in the righteousness of Christ. Jesus told his disciples, uh, talking about going through tough things, but keeping, again, keeping holding to the promises of God. He says in Matthew chapter 5, in the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. It might be tough here, but keep your eyes on the prize. It's not going to be tough forever. The third thing I want to talk about is hearts were being touched, lives were being changed, and Christ was being exalted. God's spirit was being poured out in the cities that Paul and these other men visited. His spirit is still being poured out. This isn't a, let's just, you know, frame this and put it on the wall as what happened back then. Very much what God is doing now. Now, I want to briefly comment, uh, some of you are aware, some of you may not be, uh, on what has been called revival. It's going on at a small college in Kentucky, Asbury College. Uh, first, I want to give some general comments. So the question then it becomes, as I look at this, and it's been all over the media and social media, tons of stuff going on there. And uh, I think it bears some commentary. And I, I want to just try to present this in a way that's fair and balanced and, and all. So what is revival? We see that going on here at Thessalonica. We saw it in Philippi. We'll see it in future places, stuff that these guys make along the way. The word, it's not actually found in the New Testament, but it is a biblical concept. You look in the Old Testament, you see there's a great revival under King Hezekiah. There was another revival that wasn't so good under King Josiah. Josiah, remember, he instituted a revival, but it was more... uh, of a series of reforms because it wasn't, it never took root deeply. It was a series of reforms that the people threw off pretty quickly. Looked good on the surface, but it didn't last. The word revive comes from the Latin root words, re, which means again, and vivir, 
which means to live. So literally, the word revive means again to live. Now, here's a definition of Christian revival. Revival refers to a spiritual reawakening from a state of dormancy or stagnation in the life of a believer. It encompasses the resurfacing of a love of God, an appreciation of God's holiness, a passion for his word and his church, a convicting awareness of personal and corporate sin, a spirit of humility, and a desire for repentance and growth in righteousness. Revival invigorates and sometimes deepens a believer's faith, opening his or her eyes to the truth in a fresh, new way. It generally involves the connotation of a fresh start with a clean slate, marking a new beginning of a life lived in obedience to God. Revival breaks the charm and the power of the world, which blinds the eyes of men and generates both the will and the power to live in the world, but not of the world. I think that that's a really accurate description of what revival is. So, Another question that comes to my mind is what are the signs of revival? We see signs coming out of this school in Kentucky. I'm going to give you 10 observations and I'm going to run just a little bit long here because I think this is important as we have our eyes on what's going on there. It's important that we have a a clear understanding as clear as we can uh, of what we're seeing. Here's some observations about true revival. First is it's spontaneous. Humans cannot create true revival. We're not going to schedule a revival. Okay. (laughs) It's not orchestrated. It's not promoted. It's not co-opted. And believe me, there are people trying to co-opt the thing that's going on there. And I just think about buffoons practicing their buffoonery. And it's, sorry, (laughs) a little strong opinion there. But it's true. I mean, people it's like, well, let me put my name on that. No, no, that's really not necessary because there's somebody's name on it already and that's Jesus himself. So uh, a revival is not orchestrated, promoted, co-opted. It's God sent. That's the point. The second thing is Christ is exalted. The name of Jesus in the gospel of Christ is always central. Look at what Paul was centering on as he was preaching to the church at Thessalonica. The person and the work of Christ. That will always be central. It is not about emotionalism. It is not about getting people whipped up into an emotional frenzy. The third thing is it's not chaotic. There will be a beautiful balance of order and freedom. There's a freedom to kneel, to pray, to cry out to God. But at the same time, God is not the author of confusion. Thus, everything is done in an orderly manner, in decency and in order, as the word of God proclaims. The fourth thing is revival is truly, deeply worshipful. Worship through music, sharing scripture, prayer are the norm. God-directed worship in song is powerful. And I make the distinction there, folks, because so much of what gets peddled as worship in our world today boils down to entertainment. It's not about being entertained. It's about me worshiping him, not the worship band entertaining me. It's not about an emotional response being elicited because I like the music. I was reading an article about someone that walked away from Christianity because they were so moved and they were, whoa, they were going to serve the Lord and all this because they went to this deal. But then they went to a Taylor Swift concert and had the same emotions stirring inside. And they went, 
Well, that's all that was. It was dangerous. Truly, deeply worshipful. Those who worship me will worship in spirit and in truth. That's what Jesus says in the Gospel of John. For the fifth thing we see is, is uh, revival is at the same time individualistic and corporate. Now you've got to understand something here. In the Old Testament, God dealt with Israel as a nation. In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, he doesn't deal with a group. He deals with a group of individuals. Okay? So when you see a large movement, it really is at the same time individualistic. It's one heart at a time being revived. And that might add up to a group of people, but that's not the emphasis. The emphasis is always on personal relationship with Christ. The sixth thing we see is deep conviction, brokenness, confession of sin are evident. Again, there should be a deepening aspect of revival. True revival, I like this, I came across this quote, true revival begins with agony, not ecstasy. The conviction of sin is central to what needs to take place for the human heart to truly be revived in God's economy. It's about agony. It's about seeing myself accurately. It's about being completely broken before God and saying, God, I, I need you. I don't just want you. I need you. The seventh thing is there's a genuine joy in the lives of those present. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love. Manifesting is joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, things of that nature. The eighth thing that I have here is it's relational. There is a desire to share the love. There's a desire to, to, to spread the news. The ninth thing that I have is true revival is unstoppable. It'll spread. People will come. And, and as I mentioned, uh, some of the, the people out there will try to co-opt it and make it theirs, if that's what it is. And that won't come to anything. True revival will spread. The tenth thing, and I think this is probably where we're at right now, is it will stand the test of time. Many Christians, myself included, when I came back, my first Sunday back here in this church, after I dropped dead in a parking lot last August, and obviously didn't stay dead, but I'm serious. I mean, after I went through that, Coming out of that 10-day fog that I was in, uh, I, was, I began to pray for revival. I began to pray for revival for this church. I began to pray for revival for individual hearts. Because folks, we desperately need for our hearts to be revived. I worry that we could become so inwardly focused that we're no longer effective as believers. I worry and I pray Lord, let us come out of ourselves. Let us get on fire for Jesus. Let us be the ones, let us be that city on a hill. And I pray that. I pray that individually for you folks. I pray that corporately for us as a church. So the question then becomes, as we look at the headlines, as we look at social media, as we look at what Fox News is putting out there, just about every day they've had a segment on it this last week, is Asbury, what's going on there? Is that a true revival? I don't know. It's too early to tell. 
Does it check the boxes? It, che- it checks a lot of them. It truly does. But I don't know that, I, I, don't, I think it's too early to tell. It's too early to see. Uh, because <laughs> I do believe that hearts are being touched. Lives are being impacted for Christ. And I praise God for that. Truly. Let's pray. Let's be patient. See what God does. In the meanwhile, it's not about a place. I want to really emphasize that. You don't have to make a pilgrimage to Kentucky. I, I see that where people are coming in and doing, and, and I'm not trying to fault them for that. But if this is real, if it's something that the Holy Spirit, because that's what it's about, it's about the Holy Spirit being poured out. And he's either being poured out on a group of kids at a college or there is something that is starting that's going to spread, that's going to gain momentum and, and power and strength, and it's going to go wide. If it's real, it'll come to you. It'll come here. If it's real, our nation will go into a, a national mourning and repentance. If it's real, the things that we see going on around us are going to stop. Folks, our nation is ripe for repent for repentance. I mean, it's ripe for judgment. And again, you don't need me to tell you that. But what, again, when I look at the biblical, biblical record, Israel got themselves into such a state of spiritual decay and spiritual garbage where they were into all kinds of horrible forms of worship. And they were so far gone that God took them and carted them off to another nation captive. And it took 70 years to get their attention and to get them into an attitude and a posture of repentance to come back into the land and for him to begin to once again bless. I don't know, but I do know this. I want my house to be in order. I want my heart to be aligned with his will. I want my family to know that hell is real and I don't want them to go. I want our church to be effective and powerful and have meaning and purpose. That happens one heart at a time. So folks, let's see what happens. Could be, maybe not. God's doing some great stuff with a bunch of kids. I know that. I don't know where it's going to go. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning, uh, Lord. Thank you for your word and for this brief look at the church at Thessalonica. And, and, and Lord, the things that they, they endured there, the difficulties that they endured at the hands of uh, envious, jealous men. And I'm more interested in how many people were in their thing than the message itself. And thank you, Lord, that uh, that you have raised up faithful men all over this nation, most of whom will never know their names, and faithful people in churches far and wide that simply want to know you more, that want to experience Christ in fresh ways, that want to be used in your kingdom, whether it's visiting somebody at an old folks' home or, or taking meals to the poor, whatever it is, Lord, let us be known for having the heart, the mind of Christ. Father, we pray for that, that university in Kentucky. We pray, Father, that you would continue to do uh, an outpouring there. And if it's a local outpouring, we praise you for it. If it's something that's going to take hold and, and, and get much bigger and more prominent, then we pray, Father, that that would just be unstoppable. So 
We thank you, Lord. I thank you for each one here, each one within the sound of my voice, perhaps watching online. Pray that you would work in us, that you would that you would perfect us into the image of Christ. And we know that won't happen until we're there with you, but let us be willing participants in the work that you have set before the foundations of the earth to do in each one of our hearts, that as we come together, that Christ would be glorified, that you, Jesus, would be lifted up in our midst. We're so thankful. We praise you. We thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.